So that's, that's well and good, and it's great that the, the testing process has improved. But there's been so much effort put into improving the testing process and almost no effort put into, okay, well, what does that test actually mean? Uh, what do you do with that result? And does the result actually add any value to athletes uh, in terms of planning their nutrition for, for either training or race? Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Very well, thanks, Steph. Uh, Sharing one microphone today. We haven't done a face-to-face podcast. This is the first one. I know. It's quite fun. Yeah, yeah. We're normally used to doing this uh, from home, and uh, we're both at the university today, so Mm -hmm. uh, both in here for various reasons. So, yeah, it's it's good to do the the podcast in the one room at the one time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a novelty, really. Yeah, yeah. Nice and interactive. Yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, apart from that... um, been in here doing some some stock taking things and, and getting ready for this sodium study. So um, yeah, by the time you listen to this, the uh, the information about that will be up on on social media, and we're officially recruiting for it again for the first time since twenty nineteen, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, we just tried to um, get someone who we interviewed then for your study. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Although we have to fly him into state to yep. do it. Well, we, we did actually have one person who drove over from Adelaide to Melbourne oh, wow. twice oh, wow. to do the study. I mean, to be fair, they were coming over here for other things. Yeah, but, right. um, yeah, yep. no, massive effort. Mm. Uh, so a big shout out to, to Aaron who did that. Yeah, go Adelaideans too. Mm. <laughs> uh, so here on the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that uh, runners, cyclists, triathletes may ask at training or after training at a coffee table. Uh, and we basically have a part A and a part B. So the part A involves a practitioner um, or a researcher and part B is often an athlete or a coach. Uh, and so just giving some practical um, feedback from, from the athlete or coach uh, and so the question that we are going to tackle today is, do I need a sweat test? And we are lucky enough to have uh, you, Alan, um, as our expert and um, researcher and practitioner um, to answer, help answer that question. Before we, I guess, get into this episode, um, you still, though, being next to you, um, are generating a bit of heat. Um, you're looking quite stressed. You can sense the rage. <laughs> I can sense the rage. So is there something that you'd like to get off your chest? There is. And this one actually contains a story as well. Mm, uh, but, love a story. Yes, but what's on my mind is magnesium, Steph. Magnesium, why? Yes, well, we're talking about sweat tests today. And there are a lot of people out there that talk about magnesium and they talk about, oh, I'm losing magnesium through sweat. I need to supplement with magnesium. Magnesium's going to stop me getting cramps, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they go out and they take magnesium tablets or they buy, you know, drinks that have got bucket loads of magnesium in them, thinking that that's going to be uh, the be all and end all. Yep. Now, a few little facts about magnesium just to put it into context. So something like sodium in sweat, uh, we'll talk a bit about it more as we get into the topic, but, you know, typical sweat sodium concentration is between 20 and at about 60 millimoles per litre. To put it in perspective, magnesium, how much do you think 
we would have magnesium in our sweat, Steph. Mm. So sodium is between 20 and 60 millimole per litre. How much for magnesium? Well, I think I may have a little bit of an inkling, but um, I'm I'm going to say it's it's very, very minor, very low. Between zero point um, yeah. five and one point five millibolts per liter. I was going to go one, so I was in the range, but I you're yeah. right in the middle, yeah, the median, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so that translates into about just over twelve milligrams per liter of sweat. It's okay. kind of the average magnesium loss. To put that into perspective, so twelve milligrams yeah. per liter. So one banana gives you thirty-two milligrams of magnesium. That's oh. equivalent to three liters of sweat loss of magnesium. Okay. <sighs> Quarter of a cup of peanuts, 63 milligrams, equivalent to five litres of sweat loss of magnesium. Wow. Two wheat bix and milk, equivalent to five litres. Uh, two slices of bread with a tablespoon of peanut butter, that's 86 milligrams of magnesium, or the equivalent of eight litres of sweat loss of magnesium. <laughs> so clearly magnesium is not something that we're losing in large mm. amounts compared to what we get from normal food. Food, yep. Yeah. This is not a, a a mineral that we really need to go overboard with mm. supplementing mm. either before or during exercise. And mm. now I said there was a story. Mm. So a few years ago, I was working for a, a cycling team, um, health.com.au, search to retain cycling team. And one of the riders um, came up to me one day and he's sort of part road, part mountain biker. And he said to me, oh, oh, just... Does magnesium cause you know gut issues and and diarrhea and things? So I said, well, yeah, if you take it in big enough doses, mm. it can. And as you would know, mm. I said, well, what's what's going on? And he said, oh, and it wasn't me, but a friend of mine who's a mountain biker was doing a twenty four hour national championships in mountain biking, and he was really worried about cramping. Mm. So he decided that he would get ahead of the game and would load up on magnesium mm. before the event. So he took pills and capsules and things, and then he got sports drink that deliberately had like a massive dose of magnesium in it, and he took that during the race. So what do you think might have happened, Steph? It didn't end well. It, well, it didn't end well. He didn't end the race. <laughs> he only lasted about the first six hours, and then he had to pull out of the race with severe abdominal cramping and then mm. diarrhea. Mm. Uh, and that's what happens if you take too much magnesium. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, some people swear by magnesium that it helps. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, there's no scientific evidence for that. And in fact, the, the Australian Institute of Sport have their sports supplement framework yep. looking at um, whether things are, are legal and likely to be beneficial to yep. performance. Yep. Where do you think magnesium sits in that framework? So there's, there's level A, yep. definitely works. Level B might work, but we need more research. Mm -hmm. Level C doesn't work. And level D contains banned substances. Where do you reckon magnesium sits? C. It does. It's been <laughs> downgraded from B to C in the yeah. latest iteration of the framework, yeah. uh, which I think tells us all we need to, that there is really no scientific mm. evidence that, one, that we need magnesium in big quantities, mm. or two, that doing so will be particularly beneficial. Beneficial, yeah. If yeah. anything, disastrous if we, if we overdo it. Exactly right. Mm. So... You, Don't yeah. worry about magnesium. I feel this coolness in the room at the moment now. <laughs> yeah, it does feel better, I've got to say. I've got to say, uh, yeah. But, yeah, such a common one, though. So I oh, think yeah. listeners will will benefit um, definitely from this um, and find out they may not need to be loading up on this magnesium. Yes. Which is great. Just, I guess, a bit of social media. So you can find us, The Long Munch, um, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and all your popular um, and common podcasts, um, we are on there. Um, but just um, thought I'd do a bit of an intro on Alan. Uh, so Alan, I have been lucky to 
um, really be working with you for uh, the length of time that you've been studying nutrition. Um, so you've been in nutrition and dietetics and working in this area for over 15 plus years. Uh, and then you've been in the research world of, of sports nutrition for six six or more years now and, and continuing to obviously research in the area. Uh, and then you also um, lecture and continue to do studies here at Monash University with the nutrition and dietetics um, department and um, here at BASE in Notting Hill. Uh, and you uh, have always um, been interested in, you know, in endurance sports particularly, um, and that's where we've, I guess, um, associated really well and had that interest together in and, um, and always been really practical. Um, and so you uh, did your PhD and recently um, got that all assessed and approved, layer, no, two years ago two now. Years ago, two years ago now, yeah. And um, and the question um, and topic was dietary sodium intake practices of endurance athletes and implications for sodium status during exercise. And our topic today is in this very area. So we're, we're actually asking, do we need a, a sweat test? And then we're also delving in in a bit more detail in terms of, um, you know, sodium intake needs and sodium practices of endurance athletes. Uh, so we're very lucky to have you on board. And I know that whenever I get asked this question or have a difficult um, case, um, that I'll always come running to, to you to get get advice and, and feedback. So I'm very lucky to have that. So, yeah, with this episode, we're up to 10A. 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 And we are answering the question, do I need a sweat test? So what prompted your interest in doing a PhD in the area of sodium and endurance athletes? Yeah, a, a couple of different things, I guess. Um, I sort of always had an interest in that area, and it probably goes back oh, over a decade now to when I was doing a lot of work uh, in private practice and doing a lot of sort of race nutrition plans for, for people in a whole bunch of sports, but probably the one I was doing the most of at the time was Ironman triathletes, uh, and particularly, I guess, when the um, when Ironman came to Melbourne for the first time, I think it was 2012 off the top of my head, um, I remember that year from sort of January to March, it's pretty much all I did. I just wrote race plan after race plan after race plan for people because obviously the uptake of, of people participating in Ironmans, now they no longer have to travel interstate to do it, just grew enormously here in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of those things as I was sort of writing through those plans, you know, you sort of tick off all the things that you're trying to achieve from a nutrition point of view, you know, the carbohydrate, the fluid, um, and then you get to, to sodium and people would sort of say, okay, well, you know, how much sodium do I need? And it's like, well, actually, there's no guidelines. There's nothing that really tells us how much sodium do you need. Uh, and so I really couldn't answer that question other than don't worry too much about it. Just have some sodium and, and you know, that, that'll be fine. Um, so I always had sort of in the back of my head that there was this big gap. You know, we knew a lot about carbohydrate. We knew a lot about fluid. We knew very little about sodium. So to me, it was always this gap, and it still is to this day, a uh, gap in the literature. If you go and look at the guidelines around sodium, 
uh, they're really they're, they're not very specific at all. And that's not a criticism of the people who wrote the guidelines. It's simply that there's very little evidence on which to, to sort of base those. So I was very lucky that when I went to start my PhD, um, I was pretty much just given a blank piece of paper and said, what do you want to study? So rather than having a project that I was applying to do, it was sort of like, okay, you're coming to do this PhD, what would you like to study? So I thought, well, this is a big area where there's a huge gap. Um, it, it's a good opportunity to try and start to fill some of that gap. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into it from a research perspective. Mm, yep, yep. And I remember like when we would often have, um, you know, uh, Zoom or Skype catch-ups um, yourself, me and then um, Simone, mm-hmm. um, and we would, you know, often go through, you know, when we were doing tricky cases, um, you know, nutrition planning for Ironman events or ultra-endurance events, and that was always, yeah, a, a common question that we would we would have was about sodium. So, mm, um yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD in terms of, um, you know, what you, what your main questions were that you were actually asking? Mm. Yeah, there was a, a few different things in it. Originally, I sort of went in with the intention of sort of looking at, okay, um, and this was a question that I'd come across actually probably back in about 2012 as well at a conference where uh, Tim Noakes had presented um, some stuff. It was around the time he launched his book, Waterlogged. And mm-hmm. one of the things he talked about in there was um, some of the science around uh, dietary sodium intake affecting the amount of sodium you lose in your sweat during exercise. So if you have a high salt diet, you lose more um sodium in your sweat if you have a low salt diet <clears throat> the opposite to that um, and this was an interesting thing and I went in and sort of had a look at some of the references he was sort of quoting there uh, and they were very old studies generally from you know World War Two sort of vintage mm-hmm. um, a lot of them were you know not very the, the conditions under which the studies were run were not really representative of how athletes would do things in the real world um, mm-hmm. and a lot of that the you know the scientific techniques and methods and things would simply not get published today they just not um yeah they they were good for the time but are not Mm. considered kind of um great great techniques today so i thought this was an opportunity to sort of revisit that uh in a more athlete specific context um and to do it with sort of the the most up-to-date techniques around um sort of sweat sweat sample collection and, and measurement so i sort of went in with this question that okay a lot of athletes, um, well, we think anecdotally, a lot of athletes sort of load up on sodium in the lead up to a race, particularly if they think they're going to have a problem with sweat sodium losses. And so if they do that, uh, is loading up on that sodium simply going to increase their sweat sodium loss during the race because of the increase in sodium in the days leading up? And if so, is it just sort of cancelling out any benefit that you might get from sort of loading up prior? So that was sort of one of the questions I wanted to answer. And then I guess using that, um, or the information from that to then look a bit further into sodium and performance. So what impact does replacing sodium during exercise actually have on performance because actually the literature is pretty uh, sparse on that. So uh, we didn't quite get that far because there was a few sort of methodological things that we had to sort of tick off first. But um, we, we did have a good look. We did a survey of almost 400 athletes from about 17 countries uh, looking at their beliefs around sodium, where they get their information around sodium, uh, and what they plan to do in upcoming races. Uh, we published some of that data. Um, we just took um, the data from Australia, New Zealand, the US, Canada, 
Great Britain and Ireland, I think it was, um, so we could do a bit of a region analysis because they were the only ones with you know sort of big numbers uh, in that data set. So we analysed that and, and published it in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, we looked at all the existing studies. So we did a systematic review looking at all the existing studies around sodium and sweat sodium concentration, and it was sort of a, a bit of a mixed bag in terms of findings. So that prompted us to go on and do our own study in that. Um, which we, we found from that that, yes, diet does impact sweat sodium concentration, but maybe not as much as people think. So, you know, you can double your sodium intake, but it only increases your sweat sodium concentration by about 10% on average. Mm -hmm. uh, and likewise, you can, you can cut it back to really low levels. And again, within three days, you only get about a 10% drop. Uh, and, and three days sort of fits with the, the survey that we did about how long people might alter their their sodium intake in the lead up to a race. Mm -hmm. um, and then we did a systematic review as well, looking at all the studies to date on sodium replacement and performance, which we might get to a, a little bit later on. But again, there's very little there in the literature, but unfortunately we ran out of time to then go on and do any kind of studies in that area to try and um, you know, push that forward a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and has this now left you with more questions? Definitely. Yeah, yep. I think uh, as soon as you do, anyone who's done research knows that, you know, you start off with one question and you try and answer that question and you might answer that question but end up asking another 10. Um, mm -hmm. It's very common. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you had unlimited money and resources, you could continue studying in this area for another 10 or 20 years and, and still not answer every question that's mm -hmm. out there. So, yeah, I mean, I think that happens in all parts of research. Yeah, yeah. And so with you sort of saying that, you know, with some things you, you sort of ran out of time, um, does that mean that you are continuing to research in this area and, and why? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, so I'm doing a study at the moment, uh, which we've just started recruiting for, yay. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the, the five-hour one we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, looking at, okay, if we sweat test someone and then we get the result of that sweat test, how do we use that result? Uh, and then actually looking at, okay, well, so if we give people sodium according to the result of that test, what does that do compared to giving people nothing? And we're doing that in a blinded way. So we give them uh, the sodium in capsules so they don't know whether they're getting a sodium replacement or, or a placebo. Uh, and then looking at a whole bunch of things in terms of, you know, body temperature, hydration, how much fluid they drink, how thirsty they get. Um, yeah, a whole, whole bunch of stuff there. So that's that's good, and that that study was originally meant to be run and won in twenty nineteen. Yep. Uh, we had a few uh, hiccups with some participants and things, which meant we couldn't finish it in twenty nineteen. So we thought, oh, that's fine. We'll come back and finish it in twenty twenty, <laughs> and obviously that didn't didn't end well. So now we're back here again in twenty twenty one, trying to get that study finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and so the the question that we're asking today is, do I need a sweat test? Um, as you know, there's many endurance athletes, runners, cyclists and triathletes that um, are familiar with, um, with sweat testing um, and that you can get it done to work out your electrolyte losses. Can you describe exactly what this test is and how it actually works for those that are not familiar? Yeah, 
Yeah, well, first of all, as you said, you know, a lot of people perceive there's a need for this kind of testing. Uh, as part of that survey I mentioned before, we actually asked people um, whether they thought that endurance athletes would benefit from sweat testing and looking at the sodium content. And actually 85% of people agreed to some degree that, um, yes, they believed that it was would be beneficial. But interestingly, only about 5% of people in the survey had actually had one done. So there seems to be a big mismatch between people who think it's important and people who actually go ahead and do it. Now, whether that's a cost issue, whether that's an availability issue, it's um, it may not be available depending on where you live, um, but there seems to be a big discrepancy there for whatever reason. But in terms of the actual test itself, um, we've talked a little bit uh, with uh, Dr. Lewis James in a previous podcast about fluid balance assessment, so measuring the actual sweat water losses in terms of weighing yourself before and after, and then you've got to account for you know, urine losses and food that you consume and that kind of thing. Um, this is a little bit different. Now you're looking at um, actually taking samples of the sweat uh, and then measuring the, the sodium content within that sweat. And then when you put that together with the fluid loss, you can get the total amount of sodium that's being lost from the body during exercise. So the way we collect um, sweat samples, there's a few different ways you can do it. Um, I guess the, the gold standard, for lack of a better term, is to collect all the sweat from the entire body surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's actually very difficult to do uh, and very limited in terms of the ways you can do that. Um, you basically have to exercise in what amounts to a giant plastic bag. Um, <laughs> and then it's, it's called the whole body washdown technique. So basically you do your exercise in this plastic bag, which makes things pretty unrealistic to mm. begin with. Mm. Um, and then you have to basically douse the person in litres of um either pure like deionized water some people use or some people use a, a chemical ammonium sulfate I think is the one that has been used a little bit um, and you know liters of like it's basically like getting in a shower so you pour that over them and the, the idea is to wash off all the sweat that's on the skin surface at the end of the exercise mm -hmm. so it all ends up in the bottom of the bag so you you end up with this bag which you're inside um, which your bike is inside it's usually done on a bike um, and at the bottom of it is this pool of water or chemical and your sweat. And then you come along and take a, you know, you slosh it all around. Then you go along and take a sample of that sweat. Um, and then once you've got that sample, you can you can work out how much sodium's in it, correct it for the amount of stuff that you've doused yourself in. But it's pretty limited because obviously, you know, if, you, if you're a runner, for example, um, you can't really douse a treadmill in litres, an electric motor treadmill in litres of chemicals, uh, you're probably going to say goodbye to your treadmill. So um, it, it is pretty limited in terms of the equipment that you can use and the types of exercise you can do. And obviously you can't replicate kind of the temperatures, the humidity, the airflow, all of that kind of thing that would make it more realistic. So it's good from a, a mechanistic point of view, I guess, to see what's going on, but it's not ideal to get a real world sense of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, other techniques there, again, there's labs that have these little um, things that they stick all over your body and they can collect minute little sweat samples, but they're very expensive, hard to use. Uh, so what usually gets done is put absorbent patches on. And these are basically like wound dressings that have a cotton absorptive part to it, but are sealed um, in terms of air and, and water tight uh, around the skin. And so as you sweat, some of that sweat gets absorbed into the cotton patch. You can take that off. Um, either plunger it out through a syringe barrel or put it in a centrifuge or something and actually extract the sweat sample from that and then you've got your, your liquid sweat that you can then analyse in the lab. 
Yep, yep. And is there particular areas of the body that is more, um, uh, you know, similar to to what the sweat sodium is? Like are there particular areas those patches should go on for, for individuals? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, you could put them anywhere on the body. Um, mm -hmm. The problem is that uh, if you want to be able to compare it to other studies, for example, that have looked at this, then you need to use sort of the same sites. So everywhere on our body sweats um, at different rates. The sodium concentrations are different. Uh, and that's an important distinction is so when you put a patch on and you get your sample and you measure it, it's, it doesn't necessarily represent what's happening over the whole body. Mm. Um, so what you would get from that whole body washdown technique we mentioned before. So there are um, some research studies that have come up with equations where you can take the value from an individual patch if it's on one of the standard sort of sites on the body uh, and correct it to work out what the estimated whole body sweat sodium losses. Um, interestingly though some more recent research has suggested that even if you change the intensity of exercise or you know essentially the sweat rate um, those relationships and those equations may not work in all exercise intensities or all sweat rates so mm. it's something that needs a bit more sort of investigation um, mm. but yeah it just means that it's never going to be perfect we're always sort of estimating the whole body sweat sodium loss um, yeah. And the main thing from that is if you stick a patch on the forearm, which is probably the most common side that's used, um, the value you get from that patch does not represent your whole body sweat sodium concentration. Mm -hmm. You've got to correct it mathematically first mm -hmm. to estimate the whole body. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And um, are there a typical amount of patches that they, you know, when you go get a sweat test, is there like a certain number typically that they'd put on you? So, you know, two or three or... Oh, it, it varies. Um, yeah, I mean, it varies depending on what they're looking for exactly. Like if you're in a research study, you might have multiple patches all around the body because you're looking at the relationship potentially between those different sites. Mm -hmm. uh, in my PhD, for example, we used five different sites. Mm -hmm. um, but normally if you go and get a commercial sweat test and you're just looking at that one parameter, you might only have one or two on and that's not unusual. Often they'll put on two just in case something happens to one of them. Occasionally the uh, they don't stick properly and they start peeling off and so you don't get a complete sample or something like that. So, you know, sometimes you might do both. Sometimes you'll get one on each forearm, for example, um, rather than just relying on one just in case something goes wrong. It's more as a backup. Mm, yep. Um, and is this type of test available to most athletes or is it owning for elite and professional athletes? No, it is pretty much available to anyone uh, if you're prepared to pay for it. Um, mm -hmm. So there are sort of some programs that will provide this for sponsored athletes. Um, you know, Gatorade, for example, will do that. And I think some other brands of sports drinks to have, you know, kind of similar things with their sponsored athletes. But uh, there are commercial, uh, commercially available testing services, certainly here in Australia. And I think in, in a lot of other um, countries will have something similar to that where you can actually pay someone uh, to, to stick the patches on take the samples for you and analyze them and, and send you back your results so uh and in that case it's just whether you're willing to pay the money rather than what level of athlete you are mm, yep yep and what are the main components i guess electrolytes that we lose in sweat yeah so we've talked obviously mainly about sodium so far and the reason mm. for that is it's the main or the one that we lose in the largest quantity during exercise it's also the one that the body regulates uh, in terms of, you know, the body or the sweat glands can either 
um, lose more or less sodium in different scenarios, which we'll probably get into a little bit later on. Yeah. Um, but we do lose uh, small amounts of other electrolytes as well. We lose a little bit of potassium. Um, that generally doesn't change a lot uh, from person to person or in, in different conditions. Um, and it's not a massive amount that we lose. We also lose things like calcium and magnesium, but in very small quantities. Um, so we don't really need to worry too much about those because the quantity we lose is so so tiny um, that it's it's fairly insignificant from what we can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do endurance athletes typically lose a lot of sodium in sweat? Uh, it varies a lot. Um, this is one of the things, and I guess one of the reasons that people sort of promote the use of sweat sodium testing is the fact that the amount of sodium you lose in your sweat can vary enormously from one person to the next. So uh, as a concentration, you typically see values from about 20 millimoles up to about 60 millimoles per litre as an estimated whole body sweat sodium loss. Um, So, you know, you've got a threefold difference there. Um, and that's just the concentration. Then obviously you have to factor in the sweat rate if you're going to look at the total millimoles or milligrams per hour of sodium that you're losing from the body. And obviously sweat rates, uh, as we talked about in a previous episode, can vary a lot from person to person as well. You know, anything from sort of four or 500 mils an hour right up to, you know, two and a half litres an hour, depending on the person, the weather and, you know, the exercise intensity, all those kind of things. So, yeah, you are going to see a, a reasonably big range uh, in terms of sweat sodium losses from person to person. Yep, yep. And so once you've done the test, what information do you get out of it and what types of advice or recommendations are usually based um from that result yeah this is the 64 million dollar (laughs) question and this is where things tend to kind of grind to a bit of a intellectual halt unfortunately Mm -hmm. so yeah we can get these test results or we can work out the the sodium concentration in your sweat in either millimoles or milligrams per litre of sweat. Uh, We can take that alongside the sweat rate, so litres per hour sweat rate, and then work out the milligrams per hour of sodium that's being lost for that person. Um, And so that's typically the kind of results that you get on a sweat test is like the milligram per hour loss. But the million dollar question is, okay, you've got this result, what does it mean? And what do you do with it? And unfortunately, that's where really there's almost no research at all to tell us the answer to that, um, which is hence why I'm doing this five-hour study at the moment. So there's been an enormous amount of research gone into improving the quality, the reliability of the the sweat tests, um, so they're they're more accurate, um, they're more consistent, all those sorts of things, uh, and also more practical, so um, you don't need expensive lab equipment and all that kind of stuff to do it. Um, so that's, that's well and good, and it, it's great that the, the testing process has improved. But there's been so much effort put into improving the testing process and almost no effort put into, okay, well, what does that test actually mean? Uh, what do you do with that result? And does the result actually add any value to athletes uh, in terms of planning their nutrition for, for either training or a race? Um, and so that's that's a huge gap at the moment. So when I went back and looked at studies in this area as part of my PhD, one of the things that really stood out to me is I couldn't find a single study. Literally, there has not been ever a study published that has sweat tested people and then taken the result of that test and then given them sodium according to the results of the test. Mm. So it's no surprise there's no guidelines or recommendations around this because no one's ever studied it. So 
this five-hour study we're doing at the moment is, as far as I can tell, the first study that's ever attempted to do this. So, yeah, hopefully by the end of the year we'll have uh, a bit more around that. I mean, I've already got some views on that from the, you know, the first bunch of results that have come through and just some theoretical stuff, which we can maybe get into a bit later. But, um, yeah, that, that's the big problem at the moment. So a lot of people uh, that are doing testing generally say, okay, you lose 500 milligrams per hour, you should replace 500 milligrams per hour. Uh, but as we'll talk about later on, uh, I don't think that's necessarily the best advice um, and is not achieving necessarily what needs to be achieved. Mm, yep. Yep, um, because once, you know, when we do the a sweat test, um, so say I, I do it one week, if I then go back and do it the following week, am I going to get the same result? Yeah, another really good question uh, and one that hasn't been researched very much. Uh, there has been, I think, one or two studies that have sort of had repeated tests um, in the same exercise conditions at least, and they find that the the sweat test result varies about 15% from one day to the next. Um, and that's not a surprise because the sweat rate varies by kind mm -hmm. of a similar amount. Yeah. Um, that said, in those studies, they haven't controlled diet. And we know while the impact of diet isn't massive, unless it's a massive change in sodium intake, it may have some impact on that. So if they were controlling their diet, for example, on the lead into to those, would that reduce that 15% variation, it's hard to say. But, I mean, the reality is that sodium that we eat, you know, varies so much from day to day uh, and it's almost impossible to quantify it unless you measure all your, you know, collect all your urine and, and measure it afterwards. Mm, and by then yep. it's too late anyway. So, yeah, it's enormous variation and um, I don't think that's anything we can get around. So I guess the, the main thing I'd say from that is when you get your test result, uh, don't cling on to it as an absolute number. It's going to change for various reasons uh, and it's even going to change from day to day even if you make everything exactly the same. So at best it's probably a ballpark figure. Yeah. And would it also change if I, let's say, I go and do the sweat test and I do that sweat test in heat versus if I go do that sweat test and then I do it in thermoneutral ambient conditions? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things going on here. Um, from what you described, obviously there might be a difference in sweat rate. Mm -hmm. And we know that um, sweat sodium concentration is related to the sweat rate, um, at least up to a, a certain point. Um, most of that research has been done at fairly low sweat rates, so it's nice and controlled. But at the upper end, which is maybe more relevant to, to exercise, there's less work in that. But, yeah, it, it does seem that, you know, the... Um, the sweat rate, the, the higher the sweat rate, the higher the sweat sodium concentration. And that's just mm -hmm. to do, I won't get into it now, but with how the sweat glands work. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess the other factor in there is heat acclimation. So mm -hmm. if you go and uh, acclimate, so you do a sweat test today and it's pretty cool and then you go and acclimate for 10 days and then repeat it, yes, you'll see a big drop in the sweat sodium concentration. Mm -hmm. um, that's a fairly normal response to acclimation. Yep, yep, cool. Okay. So let's then look more at the sodium needs of athletes. Um, so from, from your experience, are most runners, cyclists and triathletes conscious of consuming sodium during exercise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is where we did the, that, you know, that survey again that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we asked people their beliefs around sodium, whether they thought it was necessary and what they thought it would do for them. And about two-thirds of the people that we surveyed said that endurance athletes need more sodium on a day-to-day -day basis compared to people who don't exercise. 
Um, so there's a perceived need there because of the sweat loss. Um, just over half of them said that they needed to increase the sodium in the two or three days prior to a race to kind of load up on sodium in, in a similar way to, I guess, we're loading up on carbohydrate or glycogen, as we talked about with, with Jose in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 70% thought that they needed to replace some or all of those sodium losses during training and uh, almost 80% said that during a race um, and, and also afterwards, very similar findings. So, yeah, absolutely, there seems to be, um, for the majority of people anyway, uh, definitely a belief that, that sodium is really important. Yeah. And what did you find were the main reasons why they actually thought sodium was important? Uh, well, the main things, because again, we asked them, you know, what do you think sodium does for you that's beneficial? Mm-hmm. Um, and the most common um, things that came up were either that it prevents cramping uh, or it prevents hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium concentration. Mm-hmm. So they were you know, overwhelmingly the, the two main reasons that people thought that the taking sodium would be beneficial. Yep. And so what was the understanding of athletes for taking in the sodium? Yeah, so we asked people um, like if they were planning to take sodium in a race, uh, how would they sort of plan that or, or think about it? Um, would they think about it in terms of, you know, X number bottles of this product or um, this many salt tablets or capsules or whatever it is? Or would they think about it in terms of milligrams of sodium per hour? Would they think about it in terms of milligrams of sodium per litre of fluid they consumed? Uh, and there was a range of responses, but the vast majority talked about it in milligrams per hour of sodium replacement, which is tends to be what you get uh, in terms of sweat test results from, from most companies that do that kind of testing. Mm-hmm. Um, but quite a few people also said, oh, yeah, I'd take three bottles of XYZ product per hour, something like that. Um, they were generally, a couple of people talked about milligrams of sodium per litre of fluid they consumed, but that was the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, okay, yep. And can you tell us about the need for sodium during endurance exercise? So what does sodium actually do for us and and why is it perhaps important? Yeah, and I guess this really comes to the heart of that question of, you know, we can do a a sweat test uh, and the the quality of those are improving, but what is that actually doing to help us? What value is it adding? So if we think about what sodium theoretically does, uh, the first thing it does is if you're consuming sodium alongside water or even sodium with no water, so you're having, you know, uh, most people would know this when they're not exercising, just having a packet of chips or something like that that's quite salty. Uh, it's going to increase what we call the osmolality in your blood. So it's basically the number of dissolvable particles in the blood relative to the amount of water that's in the blood. And so I guess the way I tend to talk to athletes about this is if you think about like a, a glass of cordial, you've got the cordial and you've got the water and the cordial is kind of like the sodium in this in this instance and then you've got the water so if you tip extra cordial in it the mix is going to go darker so there's more cordial relative to the the water it's it's a you know um more concentrated solution Mm -hmm. of cordial if you like Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the same with with osmolality now osmolality is not specific to just sodium there are other things that will add to that osmolality but certainly in the bloodstream the sodium is the one that has the, the biggest influence on that out of the things that we would normally consume and the stuff that's normally in there. Um, when that osmolality goes up, so the, the concentration of all those bits in the blood goes up, uh, that tends to make us thirsty. So it signals to the brain and makes us thirsty. So we want to drink more. So 
Um, people think back to, you know, the Seinfeld episode, those pretzels are making me thirsty. That's exactly what it does. You know, the salt goes in there. It makes you thirsty because it increases the osmolality and you want to drink more. So that's, I guess, the first thing is it does tend to make you thirstier and does tend to increase the amount of fluid that you'll choose to drink as opposed to what you might plan and, and deliberately drink. Um, the second thing is you may retain more of the fluid that you drank. So again, if the osmolality goes up, that also signals to the kidneys to conserve water so you don't pee out as much water um, because you're trying to, again, balance that osmolality um, that's been increased because you had all this extra sodium. So uh, you don't pee out as much of the water that you do drink. So that's, I guess, a, a positive. Um, the other thing is it changes the dynamic of the water between the uh, the inside of our cells and the outside of our cells. Um, and so that balance is uh, regulated by this concept of osmolality. So we have an osmolality within the cells uh, and outside the cells. Um, but for, for various reasons, which I won't get into now, there's more sodium on the outside of the cells, more potassium on the inside of the cells. And so the balance of those two sort of influences how water shifts between the two compartments and whether you have more inside or, or more outside. So the more sodium we have, Generally, that'll pull water out of the cells into the blood. Yep. And so some people have sort of said, well, if you have more blood volume, that might be helpful in terms of either carrying oxygen around the body during exercise. Uh, you get more blood flow to the skin, so for getting rid of excess heat during exercise as well, and, and those things might be helpful. Um, so either body temperature or, or just um, sort of exercise capacity, I guess. Um, and then I guess the other thing that, that sodium can potentially do is if we're adding that in, uh, we're not diluting the blood as much. And so we're, we're having some protection against hyponatremia. So hyponatremia, most people in ultra endurance sports or doing sort of long course triathlon or ultra marathon will be aware of the term. It's where you basically you, you drink too much water, um, you know, probably more in most cases than what you're losing through your sweat. So you're over hydrating. And you're basically diluting that cordial. You're just adding more water and it becomes weaker and weaker. Um, same concept here. If you dilute the, the sodium or, or generally the osmolality, probably more importantly in the blood, uh, it's going to influence that fluid shift again. And so more of the fluid is going to move into the cells to try and even up the osmolality between the two. And so if you force all this extra water into your cells, they expand um, and then if that happens in the lungs or more importantly in the brain, that's when you can run into trouble with hyponatremia. So I guess the theory there is that if, okay, if we have some of the sodium, it's going to prevent some of that shift of water into the cells to prevent hyponatremia. Um, but the reality is that the volume of water has a far greater impact just mathematically than mm. the amount of sodium. So yes, sodium has some influence on preventing hyponatremia, but it's pretty small when you compare it to the amount of water that you're drinking. Yeah. Yeah. And did the athletes report benefits from taking in the in the sodium? And if they did, what were the benefits? Yeah. So again, in the survey, we asked the athletes, like, tell us your experiences of taking sodium in a race and, and what do you think it did for you? And some, you know, swore blind that it cured their cramping issues. Like they started taking sodium and never had a cramping problem again. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, we can come back and talk a bit about that later on maybe. Um, some said that it reduced their nausea a little bit. Um, but again, they, that wasn't the majority of people. Only a few people said that. Uh, and a lot of people just said that overall they either felt better or just felt that they performed better with it. 
Um, they couldn't really say why or how. Um, they just felt that things were better when they had sodium um, or they were taking it during a race. I guess the flip side to that, though, is that some people did have some nightmare experiences with taking sodium, and particularly, I guess, it was more so the people who went with either really high dose, uh, like really salty fluids, or used capsules and tablets, salt capsules, salt tablets, that sort of thing. Uh, and quite a few people in there talked about having a lot of gut issues, um, particularly nausea and vomiting, or um, quite severe diarrhea if they took sodium. And it was generally in, in people that took really high doses. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so now we want to look at what we know about sodium needs and losses um, in endurance athletes. So how, I guess, how do we lose sodium and how do we gain sodium? Mm. Yeah. So sodiums, I guess it's an interesting, or I think it's an interesting one. If we think about, for example, we talked about iron a couple of podcasts ago with Pete Peeling and the fact that the amount of iron that gets into our body is very much, uh, or the amount of iron that's in our body is very much determined at the absorption end. So mm. we eat a certain amount of food that has iron in it and our body regulates how much of that iron we take up from the gut into the, the bloodstream. But sodium is regulated at the other end. So the sodium comes into the body, it's then dealt with based on how much goes out of the body and that's where the regulation comes from. So obviously with sodium, there's generally two places that we lose sodium. One is in our sweat, which you know, everyone will be familiar with, and we've just been talking about you know, testing and quantifying that. Yeah. Uh, and the other is in our urine. So if we don't do any exercise, you know, for sedentary people, you know, 95% of the or more of the sodium they lose from their body comes through their urine. Mm. But if we're sweating, um, that, that obviously that balance shifts. Um, and we know that the sweat glands kind of take precedence. So... Uh, and that makes sense because sweat is functional around, you know, controlling body temperature. Um, so that kind of gets priority and the kidneys will get rid of whatever's left over that needs getting rid of, you know, once exercises, either, you know, if it's ongoing or, or if it's stopped, um, the excess will go out through our urine. Um, so that's kind of how we lose it. Obviously, how we gain it from eating and drinking foods that contain sodium. So generally speaking, salt, sodium chloride. Uh, but we can get sodium in other forms, things like sodium citrate, for example, which is increasingly being used in sports nutrition products, I think mainly from a, a flavour perspective. Um, yeah, and that's, I guess, the, the ins and outs. Uh, and then our body's very good at sort of controlling all of that and, and regulating that. Yeah, yeah. And so you talked about a little bit about um, then us regulating sodium. So so how is it mainly regulated in the body? Yeah, it, it's an interesting one and it's an area that um, I guess we've known about for a while but has sort of really picked up momentum in the last sort of five or ten years. So uh, if we think about how we uh, – factors that influence how we gain sodium would be basically drive to consume sodium, so salt cravings essentially – this is an area that a lot of people have sort of theorised around, uh, but there's been very little evidence to show um, people having salt cravings in response to a deficit. A lot of people anecdotally tell you, oh, I just really wanted, you know, salty food. But whether that's mm. a genuine salt craving or it's more a flavour fatigue preference for savoury foods mm -hmm. um, is kind of hard to sort of pull that apart. But in terms of the, the regulation around the losses, uh, as I said, the, the sweat glands kind of take the precedence. So when we, um, the way that sweat glands work, just to 
cut a long story short is the sweat glands first produce sweat from the, the fluid that's surrounding the sweat gland, which is what we call interstitial fluids. So in terms of composition, it's basically the same or very similar to what's going on in the bloodstream. Um, so it's extracellular, outside the cell fluid. And then once that sweat's formed, it travels through the sweat duct towards the surface where it's obviously going to come out onto the skin. And as it travels through that duct, some of the sodium and the chloride is what we call reabsorbed. So it goes back into the body through channels in the, the lining of the sweat ducts. Um, and so the the concentration of sodium on the, uh, in the sweat when it arrives at the skin surface is inevitably lower than what it is when the sweat's first made, which is, reflects what's in the blood. Um, so just to give you an example, you know, blood sodium is normally between about 135 and 145 millimoles per litre. By the time that sweat arrives at the skin surface, it's anything from about 20 up to maybe 80 mm -hmm. millimoles per litre. Occasionally, for, for people with certain genetic conditions and things, it can be higher than that um, for, for a bunch of reasons. But that escape of the sodium back into the body as it travels through the sweat duct, um, that, that has a regulatory part to it. So uh, that's where if our diet, so you know, the studies that I did around changing the amount of sodium in your diet beforehand, that influences mm -hmm. how efficient the body is at reabsorbing that sodium. Um, we talked about the sweat rate before as well, affecting you know, the sodium loss, and that's to do with how quickly the sweat travels through that gland. And if it travels, you know, the faster it travels through, the less of it escapes back into the body and the more of it just kind of passes through without getting um, caught and brought back through uh, into the body. So um, they're kind of the things that, that will regulate it from a sweat loss perspective. Uh, and then the kidneys, um, there's the main hormone aldosterone that's involved with um, either retaining sodium or, or letting it out into the kidneys. Um, and that seems to be the follower. So in other words, if you're exercising, you do your thing. Um, and then the follow-up to that, the kidneys kind of adjust for the, the lumps and bumps that have been created by the exercise or changes in salt intake and that kind of thing. Uh, I guess the thing that's been interesting and more recent in this space is the discovery that we actually store a fair bit of excess sodium in our skin uh, and some in our muscles as well, and possibly even in the lining of our blood vessels. Um, and we do it in a way that is what we call osmotically inactivates it. Basically, it means it has no influence on the movement of water throughout the body and it doesn't retain water or anything like that. Uh, but it does allow the body to kind of buffer. So we suddenly go out and eat a, a massively salty meal and we get all that sodium coming into the body in a big hit. Our kidneys are not going to be able to flush out the excess quickly enough. Mm -hmm. particularly if um, we need to conserve water, if we're not drinking or we're just having lots of salt. So we need somewhere to put park that sodium until the kidneys can kind of get rid of the excess. Uh, and that's done in, in these spaces within the body. Uh, what we don't know yet is whether that has any interaction with the sweat glands. Uh, we know it does interact with the kidneys, but we don't know whether it interacts with the sweat glands yet because most of that research has been done in sort of medical conditions, things like heart failure and kidney failure and the, the various treatments that are that are associated with those. Yeah, yeah. And what factors impact on sodium losses? Yeah, so we talked a bit about this already. Um, mm. Anything obviously that affects the sweat rate will impact mm. on the sodium loss uh, in terms of you know how much of that sodium is retained, but also obviously the sweat rate just 
the more sweat you lose, the more sodium you're going to lose as well. Um, so, you know, we talked with Ollie J about the factors that influence sweat rate in terms of, you know, the environmental temperature, the airflow, the humidity, um, you know, clothing, like how covered up your skin surface is, all these kinds of things are going to impact on, on your sweat rate. Uh, we've talked about diet before, and that was kind of the work I did in my PhD. Um, does the fitness status of the athlete make a difference, like recreational versus elite? Theoretically not, as far as we can tell. Uh, I guess where it may impact more so is that if you're exercising at everyone at, say, a race pace, an elite athlete's race pace will be higher, so therefore they're producing more heat, therefore they're sweating more, and so their sodium concentration and the absolute, like the per hour sodium loss might be higher in an elite athlete just because they're doing more work at, at their race pace compared to a, a recreational athlete at their race pace. Um, there's often been talk about genetics, you know, um, you know, particularly sort of 10, 15 years ago, people said, oh, you know, there's all this variation in sweat sodium concentration, it must be genetic. Um, I think there may be some element to that, but I think we're starting to realise that there's probably other factors that explain the majority of the variance in it in terms of, you know, the sweat rate, the, the dietary intake. Uh, we don't fully understand all of those mechanisms yet, but I think um, it wouldn't surprise me if it turns out that genetics has got very little to do with it. Yep. And uh, how can sodium status in an athlete impact on endurance performance? So mm. I guess that's coming back to your study you're currently doing. Uh, well, not quite because we're not doing mm. a performance test in this study, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, it's a yep. five-hour study and uh, the powers of B wouldn't let me do a performance test after five hours of running. Yep. So that was a bit of a, a dampener. But uh, mm. for those who are doing the study, you don't have to do an all-out test at the end of five hours. So that's nice. So you can <laughs> still come and do it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of performance, we actually looked at this, again, as, as part of the PhD, we did a systematic review. So looked at all of the studies that we could find that had looked at sodium intake and performance. Uh, we only found five, uh, and the majority of those had some sort of major methodological issue, which means, to be honest, I wouldn't really trust the results from them. Mm. Uh, one of the studies gave them so much water that you know, the large chunk of the participants, I think more than half, got hyponatremia um, in the study, so that's not really ideal. Um, others had, had other various issues associated with them. Some of them were done during actual races, one during a half Ironman, one during an Ironman. Um, where the performance might have been influenced by other things like, you know, drafting, times through transition, um, other things that, that went right or wrong in terms of, you know, if you had a puncture or you had, um, you know, you dropped your, your bars or your gels and so you didn't get the amount of carbohydrate that you expected, all those kinds of things. So not not really sure how well we can trust those studies. I mean, it's great that they're, they're doing that in a, a real-world situation, um, but it's, it's kind of harder to tease out any, any real effect there. Um, but the, the thing that was common to all of these studies which really surprised me was firstly that every single one of them was done in a fairly cool environment. I think the hottest environment in any of these studies was low 20s in mm. terms of degrees Celsius. So really there hasn't been any studies of sodium replacement and performance in hot conditions, which is where you would expect most likely there to be an effect. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that really stood out to me is that as I said earlier, not one of these studies actually sweat tested people first and gave them the sodium according to their individual losses. And we yep. know that varies so much from person to person. So in each of these studies, they just gave everyone the same arbitrary amount of sodium. Um, yep. 
And so for some people, that was probably more than they're going to lose. For some people, it's probably substantially less. And some people, it's probably about what they lose. Um, and so again, if they see no effect, is it simply because they're not consistently supplementing them with sodium relative to the amount that their body's losing? It's hard to say. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't really know. No, no, exactly right. I mean, I think um, I mean, we can talk about this a, a little bit later on, but I think the way I think about it is trying to conceptualise theoretically why sodium might be beneficial and then sort of putting all those pieces together and coming up at least with a hypothesis. Um, yeah. And hopefully one day someone will come along and test it. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of endurance athletes hear that they need sodium for cramping, which we sort of mentioned before is this actually true cramping's a really tough one um, for a few reasons I guess the first reason is it's fairly unpredictable so it's not like you can bring someone into a lab and go okay when I count to 10 can you just cramp for me and and we'll measure that so because of that it's really hard to study cramping consistently um, and so what tends to happen is there's this generally two kinds of studies that are done on cramping. One is that people turn up to a race with a clipboard and a pen and they say to people before, you know, after the race, did you cramp, yes or no, rate how bad it was, um, hoping that they can remember that accurately for a start. Mm. Uh, and then they try and look at different parameters in the, the people that cramped and the people that didn't cramp and see if there's any differences, so that kind of observational type research. And that can be kind of interesting, but it doesn't tell us a huge amount and doesn't mm. tell us what's going on and why. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, a tricky one. The other way that it is done in a lab is through a, um, electrical stimulation. So they'll put electrodes on the muscle and then basically zap the muscle, um, till the point that it starts to cramp from fatigue basically. And so you have, um, what they usually call the threshold frequency. How much did they have to zap people essentially before they started cramping? Mm -hmm. And then they can, you know, do change things, you know, whether yeah. it's hydration, whether it's the exercise type, whether it's sodium, whatever. And then they can see, okay, well, we changed this. Did it change the threshold frequency for cramping? Um, that that model's sort of been criticised for some people saying, well, it's not real world. You're looking at, you know, someone's little toe cramping or their calf or something like that. That doesn't – and there's no exercise involved in some of those studies. Some of them there is. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, other people have sort of done that kind of work and shown that the people who are more susceptible to cramping, like they have a lower threshold frequency, are also the people that are more prone to cramping in a, an actual race environment as well, um, which suggests that there is some relationship between the two. Um, about 10 years ago, um, people kind of closed the door on, on sodium and electrolytes um, being related to cramping. There's a, a bit of research activity at that, that time and, and some, I guess, review and expert opinion papers that kind of concluded that uh, muscle fatigue was the main cause of cramping and, and that if you um, you know, you, you tend to cramp in a race because you're going harder and for longer than what, you, what you're what used to in training. Uh, and that's the reason that you cramp. It's got nothing to do with electrolytes. Uh, from that observational stuff I talked about before, there's no relationship between hydration, between sodium intake or any of those things and cramping. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly, there's been a couple of studies just over the last two or three years, uh, and one just published the other week actually, um, which have found that um, consuming sodium compared to plain pure water 
um, did influence people's threshold frequency in the lab for that those sort of electrically stimulated cramps. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, though, if you look at those research um, papers, and there, there's three of them, uh, one without exercise and, and two with exercise, um, to me, the authors in those papers talk about the sodium and the sodium concentration in the blood potentially being important, and we don't see that in the observational studies. Like if you go to a race and measure it, you don't see that effect. But what I think is possibly happening if I look at those three studies is that osmotic shift, what we are talking about before of the shift from water from the outside of the cells to the inside of the cells. And in all three of those studies, when they were drinking the water, they were drinking enough water that that was going to cause a a substantial shift of fluid into the cells. Mm -hmm. And so possibly it's the swelling of the cells that's maybe making people more prone to cramping than the actual sodium itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason why you may not see that if you go out to a a race with a clipboard and a pen and do this, or even if you're measuring their blood sodium concentration, is you're not measuring um, the fluid inputs and outputs and the sodium inputs and the outputs. You might be estimating the amount of fluid they drank. You might estimate body weight change or sodium intake, but you're not getting that whole picture of both fluid and sodium turnover. And for me, that incomplete picture is possibly the reason that we can't draw any conclusions from that kind of study, because it may be that, you know, the people that are having sodium are also more likely to be the people who are more ag- aggressively hydrating. And so those two things are in step with each other and that's appropriate. The people who are not taking sodium are also the ones that are drinking to thirst, not drinking as much. Um, and then those still those things are still kind of in step with each other where it's the drinking lots of water without sodium uh, that might be the problem. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say for sure, um, but there certainly seems to be potentially another reason why that might be the case here. Um, And, you know, I think the other thing is you've got to uh, think about, you know, how many athletes swear that sodium helps their cramping. So even if you can't see it in a study, doesn't mean the effect's not there. Maybe we're just not looking in the right way. Uh, And I'd hate to just, you know, write all those people off and say it's all in their head or they don't know what they're talking about or they're just being stupid because, you know, you you hear it again and again and again. my thinking is that there must be something in there. We've just got to ask the right question and measure it in the right way to to find the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, so possibly. Mm. So with sodium supplementation, um, is there more effective ways of taking sodium during exercise? So is it better to take it in capsule form, gels, drinks, food? Good question don't know. Um, (laughs) There really isn't any research on this in terms of like the form of sodium comparing one to the other. Um, Certainly not during exercise anyway. There's a little bit before exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, My thoughts is it probably doesn't make a massive difference. Uh, The only thing is that with capsules, um, potentially you're dumping a whole lot of sodium, particularly if they're capsules like gelatin capsules that just dissolve instantly when they hit your stomach or hit water even. Um, they're likely to dump a big whack of sodium into your stomach immediately um, and that can increase your risk for nausea and vomiting as opposed to obviously drinks you're kind of trickling it in in smaller amounts over a longer period of time or you can get capsules where the the outside part of the capsule breaks down more slowly and again that's going to release the sodium more slowly as well Um, that might be better tolerated Um, but other than that um, we, we really don't know yeah yeah And what about the actual form of sodium? So uh, as you mentioned before, there's some, I think, companies now maybe using more sodium citrate 
etc is there a particular type of sodium that we should be looking for in supplements mm. again we have absolutely no idea it's never been studied um, mm -hmm. sodium citrate uh, in this context, I mean, it's been studied as a potential performance-enhancing supplement, so that's mm. quite different doses. Um, yeah. But in terms of, you know, as an electrolyte or as a provider of sodium as an electrolyte, mm. it's never um, really been studied. It's mm. generally all been sodium chloride. Um, I guess the one thing I would say there is that when we, you know, I mentioned before that our body regulates how much sodium we lose in sweat during exercise, it also does the same for chloride and it does it matched with sodium. So if we lose more sodium, we also lose more chloride and vice versa. So they're, they're always paired together, both in sweat losses uh, and, and generally speaking in urine losses as well. So um, th th we're always gonna lose them together, but if we start to um, split them apart in terms of the replacement during exercise, so if we use sodium citrate and not sodium chloride, uh, we're replacing all of the sodium, but none of the chloride. Now, does that have any implications? Don't know. Well, no one's ever looked at that. So uh, it's another area that I'm sort of interested in doing some research on in the future. Um, but at this stage, we've got no idea. Yeah, yeah. So what should we be looking out for when we're looking into sodium supplements? So I guess in terms of, because I know we both would have athletes that they might say, oh, yeah, take a lot of like, you know, salt capsules, but when we actually look at it, and they might then think that they're taking a lot of sodium in, but when you actually look at the amount of sodium in that capsule, they can get confused between, you know, like salt and sodium. Mm. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us about what we should be actually or what the athletes should be looking at when they're, you know, mm. considering particular sodium supplements? Yeah, yeah, this is obviously an area of potential confusion, the difference between salt and sodium, um, mm -hmm. and probably more so recently actually, because I think in Europe they've changed their food labeling laws. So it now has salt on the label of packages rather than sodium. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in Australia and, and in the US as well, we, uh, we label it with sodium. Yeah. Um, but I know for example, when uh, Morton first came to Australia, obviously it's a Swedish product, um, they use sort of the European, or you know, the, the early imports use the European labels, uh, and so it has salt on it. And obviously, on their mm -hmm. website, it has salt on it rather than sodium. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that can definitely get confusing for people. So, salt is sodium chloride. So, if you see a label that has salt, take forty percent of that, and that's the sodium component. Yep. Yep. Okay. Cool. And can we take in too much sodium? Yeah, again, another interesting question. I mean, obviously on a day-to-day -day basis, yes. You know, we, there's a, a very good link between, you know, excess salt or sodium consumption and, you know, the risk of high blood pressure and things like that. Um, but in terms of during exercise, um, yeah, we definitely can. Uh, and this is something I've been looking at a little bit recently, at least from a sort of mathematically a mathematical modelling point of view, mm -hmm. is... Uh, if we take in too much sodium compared to what we lose in sweat, so we're over-supplementing sodium, uh, generally speaking, that's going to increase our blood sodium concentration, particularly if we're not matching that with water. If we're matching that with water, we're probably going to end up with you know, fluid overload, and that's not good either. Uh, but if, we, if it's just the sodium, uh, it'll increase our blood sodium concentration significantly. It'll make us very thirsty. Um, and there's no benefit. Uh, and the other thing is that when our osmolality goes up from you know, that higher 
sodium concentration, we tend to sweat less. So there may be a negative implication in terms of body temperature as well. So yeah, certainly there's no reason to do that. There's no you know advantage in doing it. There's no real theoretical or, or observed benefit. So why would you do it? Uh, I guess is the main thing. Uh, and then I guess coming back to you know how much sodium should you take during exercise? As I said, there's really no guidelines at the moment, but I've been doing a little bit of mathematical modeling on this lately because there is some published equations that were originally designed for hospitals to work out people's blood sodium concentrations and is, was it the sodium, was it the water, or was it a combination of those that was causing their their blood sodium to be too high or too low or whatever it is. Uh, and that's been um, partially validated in, in exercise um, back in 2008. Uh, and so I started putting different scenarios through that equation to say, okay, well, if we want to keep our blood sodium concentration stable from the start to the end of exercise, and we, you know, we can vary the sweat rate, we can vary the water replacement, we can vary the sweat sodium concentration and the amount of sodium we replace, what does that actually do? Like which of those parameters actually is important? Um, and, and the thing that seems to be important is, is one, the sweat sodium concentration, but two, it's how much fluid you replace. Because we've got to remember that sodium, people tend to think about it like, a bit like glycogen, like there's this big store of it and we don't want to deplete it because things will go wrong if we deplete it. But in reality, it's more around its relationship to water and how that influences how much water we retain or not and where that water sits between the inside and outside of the cells. That seems to be the important part. We, we don't have any scientific evidence that loading up on sodium or increasing the body's stores uh, is helpful. And, and generally speaking, our kidneys will stop us doing that anyway by just flushing out the excess. So anyway, I went through and did this sort of mathematical modelling and um, how aggressively you replace your fluid seems to be probably the most important thing in terms of how much sodium you need to replace during exercise. So if you replace more than about 80% of your sweat losses, then sodium starts to have an impact. Uh, but if you replace less than 80% of your fluid losses, then actually your sodium concentration is going to go up anyway. So if your sodium concentration is going up, why would you want to add more sodium? That's only going to make that increase worse. Mm. Um, so it's, it's an interesting one, and I think it comes back to the fact that, you know, sodium and water are uh, intricately linked, and we need to think about them in that way, and we can't think about replacing one without the other um, when, we, when we have those recommendations. So I think if we ever do get to the point of having some sort of sodium recommendations for athletes during exercise, it's going to be somehow linked to the amount of water they're drinking. Yeah, because that was actually going to be a follow-up question because I know we talk about this when I get your advice for athletes um, is, yeah, often when we get the sweat testing results back, like you mentioned, they could actually say, okay, well, you lose this amount of sodium per hour, you know, in this amount of fluid per hour. So with athletes, when they do these um, tests and they get the results back, should they be thinking about, okay, well, I need to replace this amount of sodium per hour, this amount of fluid per hour, or should they be thinking about um, the, the amount of sodium per volume? Yeah, uh, certainly uh, the last couple of years I've sort of moved towards this amount of sodium per volume of fluid consumed. Mm -hmm. I think even then that's probably too simplistic because the amount of volume of water consumed is still in relation to the amount of volume of water that you're losing through sweat. Mm. So, you know, you might drink a litre an hour of fluid, but if you're losing two litres an hour, 
through sweating, you're still only replacing 50% of your losses. Mm. And so because of that, your sweat sodium concentration is still going to go up, mm. um, in which case adding sodium to that is, again, just going to increase the rise in sodium concentration, which is potentially not that helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, what's probably more helpful is to drink more water. Now, the sodium may make you inclined to drink a bit more, but mm. if you're only drinking that much, there's probably a reason for that, whether that's because you don't have access to the water or the opportunities to drink it, whether it's a, a gut tolerance issue, which we've talked about previously, uh, whether it's simply that your thirst is not in tune with what's actually going on, um, or whether it's just not necessary because it's a fairly short event anyway, um, you know, something up to maybe marathon distance if you're, you're at the pointy end of the field is probably, you know, you don't really need to replace big amounts of, of your water losses and, and probably it's not going to be possible to do so anyway. Mm-hmm. So in those scenarios, there's probably no need for sodium at all as, as far as we can tell. Um, but again, a lot of this is kind of hypothetical. So uh, we, we need to test some of these hypotheses properly to, to find out. But it's just a shame that um, there's so many claims made around this stuff and it's usually the claims of, of filling the, the vacuum that's been created by the lack of research. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so can you sum up with where you think we're at in our knowledge about sodium needs for endurance athletes? Mm. Yeah, I think we, we're at the point now where we've got a pretty good understanding of how we can work out how much people sodium are, how much sodium people are losing and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are the factors that will change that between people and, and from day to day as well. So I think we're getting pretty good at understanding that. Um, I think we're getting slightly better at understanding the different things that sodium does or doesn't do for us or what the replacement of that may or may not do for us. But I think where we've still got a long way to go is to say, okay, well, by putting all of that stuff together, how much sodium do we actually need to take during exercise? And so if we go out and do our sweat test and we're at the higher end of the scale, how do we use that result? What do we do with it? How much sodium do we replace? At the moment, it's still very much a stab in the dark. I mean, the test will say, yes, I'm at the higher end of normal. Um, but exactly what that means for the athlete um, is still pretty vague and, and we don't really know, unfortunately. Yep. And so I guess you've highlighted the gaps in research, but apart from the study that you're looking at, um, what other sort of research studies do you think are needed in this area? Oh, how long we got? Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Going for the next hour probably. Yeah, list your, so once you've done this, what would be your ideal, you know, next two or three um, studies next to even. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the one that we're doing at the moment, uh, we're replacing the sodium purely based on the test. So how people do it now, generally in milligrams per hour. Mm. Um, I think that if we were to do it again, what we'd probably do is use some of this mathematical modelling and, and try and uh, prove that that modelling makes sense in the real world mm. um, and, and sort of validate that hypothesis, either, you know, for or against, you know, I don't really care what the outcome is as long as we understand it. Um, so that would probably be the next step. Um, and then I guess it's then, okay, if we can validate that as potentially the recommendations that we could use, what are the implications of that on, you know, body temperature, on performance, on cramping risk, on hyponatremia? So then looking at all those sort of outcomes that people actually care about in the real world uh, and starting to see, okay, if we can come up with some uh, formula or way of working out how much sodium to take and then we do that, 
does it actually help for any of those outcomes that we we really care about and that athletes really care about yeah and also does do you know does gender um have an impact on on sodium losses in sweat it doesn't seem to from as far mm-hmm. as we can tell. So there has been a bit of research on this. Most of it's fairly uh, old. It goes back, you know, several decades. Uh, some of the methodologies aren't the greatest in terms of, um, like, for example, looking at the menstrual cycle and whether there's differences in sweat sodium loss across the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, some, you know, a couple of studies suggested yes, the most, most of them suggest no, uh, but how they worked out what phase of the cycle that the, the female athletes were in was was pretty poorly done uh, and yep. certainly you probably wouldn't even get it published today so yep. um, hard to say but from from what we can tell no there doesn't seem to be a big gender difference and uh, the main gender difference that we would see is probably simply due to size and body weight so uh, you know the bigger you are um, potentially more power you put out or the um, yeah, the more body heat you generate and so your sweat rate will be higher and that will influence the sodium loss. But it's to do with the sweat rate, not a gender-specific mm-hmm. effect, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And so, again, just uh, summing up, um, what would be your take-home messages for endurance athletes with sodium and sweat testing? Mm. It's a tricky one because we don't have great guidelines around this to sort of give, you know, very clear-cut take-home messages, unfortunately. Um, I think, look, a lot of people have said that sodium is completely unnecessary during exercise. There's no situation where sodium is at all beneficial and sweat testing is a waste of time and all that kind of thing. Um Certainly for shorter duration stuff, I'd probably agree with that. You know, anything up to sort of two, three hours of exercise, I don't think um, there's a need to, to you know, aggressively replace sodium. And it's not to say, you know, deliberately go out and avoid sodium. If you're having a bit in your drinks or your gels or whatever, it's not going to be harmful, um, especially in those sort of smaller quantities. And, and if it improves the taste of things that you're having, it makes them less sweet and, and so you're more likely to want to drink them, then that's probably a good thing. Um, but it's... I guess not having a specific amount that you need to stick to or, or targets or anything like that. For more of the ultra stuff, I guess that's where potentially you're going to get mismatches between uh, both water and sodium inputs and outputs, and that's where there may be some benefit. Um, I guess if there's a perceived issue, then you could get tested to see if you're at the higher or the low end of the spectrum. But as I said before, you know you get your test result. I'd kind of think of it more as a ballpark. I'm at the higher end or the lower end as opposed to I'm 45 or I'm 55 millimoles per litre mm-hmm. um, because it's going to vary so much um, with all those factors we talked about. Uh, and then in terms of replacement, I mean, I think um, if you're drinking to thirst, then generally speaking, you're probably not going to very aggressively replace your fluid in most cases, uh, in which case sodium is probably not going to make a huge difference. Uh, if you're being a bit more targeted with your fluid replacement and, and you're pushing that a bit more aggressively, that's when there probably is a bit more benefit of sodium. But again, exactly how much you need to replace is hard to say. Uh, what I would say, though, is I, I couldn't find any examples in all that mathematical modelling where 100% replacement was necessary. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't mm-hmm. think there's any situation that I can come up with where you know, if you lose 500 milligrams an hour, I can't find any scenario where replacing 500 milligrams an hour is going to be helpful. Uh, you're probably looking at more like sort of half to two thirds replacement is probably going to cover most people in most situations. Yeah. 
Yeah. And also the the form of, of sodium at the moment doesn't appear to be have a big impact um, that we know of in terms of um, when we're exercising, you know, whether we take it in capsule form or gel, no. apart from perhaps if we're taking large amounts, we maybe want more of a slow-release capsule. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And then the sodium chloride versus sodium citrate, okay. again, we don't really know. Uh, but that said, there's so many sodium citrate products out there. Mm. People are doing ultra events on these products and they're, you know, we're not having this epidemic of problems as a result of it. So if there is an effect, I'd say it's relatively small. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for that wealth of, of info. And uh, I know everyone will find this really, really helpful because sodium supplementation and, you know, talking about whether it's needed for performance or whether it's needed for cramping is is really common amongst um, our listeners. So um, I, I know they'll find it really valuable and there's some really good practical information there and in how you can interpret sweat testing. So thank you, Alan, and I know we'll hear more from you in, in the further research that you're doing in this area. Mm, I hope so. <laughs> All right, now's the fun part, bonus round to learn a little bit more about you. So if you could do anything besides what you are doing now, what would it be? Ah, good question. I think I'd probably do something like architecture, I reckon. I've always been fascinated by that, designing stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, I reckon that'd be pretty cool. I'd, I'd like yep. to do something like that. Architect. Mm, mm. wouldn't have picked that there you go yeah yep yep sounds good and one of the things on your bucket list you haven't yet done mm, I was having a think about this I mean there's a, probably a few things but I mean my background is in competitive sailing um, uh, multi-hull sailing mostly and that's sort of really taken off in the last sort of 10 years or so thanks to the America's Cup and the introduction of foiling multi-hulls and, and falling monohulls as well and but I've never had a chance because I sort of came out of the sport just before that all kind of took off so I've never had a chance to, to sail any of these kind of foiling boats which kind of fly along above the water so I'd really love to to get out on a foiling boat and have a good crack at that because it's a completely different type of sailing from from what I'm told completely different feeling um, bloody fast mm. uh, and a lot of it looks a lot of fun so I'd really like to try that uh, yeah unfortunately I left the sport at just the wrong time yep yep and and so you know I know that you've got that background in sailing and I know you also enjoy mountain biking uh you've just told us about you know is there a sport that you've seen and thought I'd love to try that one day so so perhaps not what you've just mentioned for that is there another sport that you've thought oh that looks pretty cool um yeah good question I've never done cyclocross, actually. That would be pretty cool. Mm. Um, yep. Cyclocross in Australia is pretty tame. We don't get the sort of the boggy mud and the snowstorms mm. and stuff of the giant sand pits that they get over in Europe. Yep. So that would be a lot of fun, I reckon, to, to have a crack at that. Or or maybe something like kiteboarding is another thing. Like I've done yeah. a lot of sailing, done a lot of windsurfing, but never done yeah. kiteboarding. So I reckon yeah. they'd probably be two that I'd like to, to give a crack at one day. Yep, yep. And do you live by any piece of advice or particular motto um 
Not really. I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm a very philosophical person. I mean, my, my wife was an elite high jumper, and she's had like when we first met, she had like leather photos with the quotes and stuff up all around the walls and stuff of her apartment. But yeah, yeah. I guess probably the only two I can think of probably things that my dad used to drill into us when we were younger was you know if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Was one mm-hmm. of them, mm-hmm. uh, and the other one was don't was do it properly or don't do it at all. Mm. was probably the two that probably got drilled into me a lot at a young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the other one I like uh, from this podcast actually was right back in our very first episode from Louise Burke, which was Don't Be a Dick. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> or it was something like Be Kind. <laughs> yeah. Well, or did I she say she said, that, did she? She literally said Don't Be a Dick. <laughs> um, and I think that pretty much tells yeah. you all you need to know really. Yeah, 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 totally. I think if most people followed that, we'd be, we'd be much better off as a society. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've been working with you for a long time and I think you live by all of those ones you've, you've said. So you, you work bloody hard and you're incredibly kind and, and giving. So um, I'm not a dick, that's good. You're not a dick. <laughs> <laughs> what's one piece of advice you would give to athletes in relation to practising good sports nutrition? So something that you... I guess, come across a lot with the athletes that you work with and, and you think they'd benefit from? Yeah. Um, like, I think we've talked a lot about these in the podcast already. Obviously, you know, mm-hmm. practising stuff in training before you get to race day is a big one that we always talk mm-hmm. about. I don't know, mm-hmm. one of your big bugbears. Um, yep. Probably the only other thing I would say is it never seems ceases to amaze me how many athletes, even at elite and professional level, put so much time and effort into their training plans, their training schedules, collecting and logging all this data, pouring over all their numbers and putting on Strava or training peaks or whatever it is. And then you ask them what they eat and they're like, oh, no, good toast. Um, <laughs> and so if they put half the effort that they did into their training, into yep. their nutrition, I think, you know, they'd be in a much better place in a lot of cases. And it's mm. not to say that, you know, nutrition is – uh, equally important as, as the training and ultimately you've got to do the training so yes. uh, yep. yeah I don't think it's a, a perfect 50-50 in terms of the importance necessarily but mm-hmm. yeah as I said even if they put a, a fraction of that effort into um, their nutrition around planning that um, collecting information about it getting feedback on it all that sort of thing as they do around their training schedule I think that would would go a long way yeah 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 good bit of advice there totally agree yep awesome Cool. Now we know a little bit more about you. Yep. Not a dick. Not a dick. Excellent. Love it. Awesome. Such a wealth of information as always. And as we know in research, we then always find out that there's more questions to be answered. But then if we're lucky enough, we can continue to answer those questions and research the area, which um, that's what you're, you're doing is fantastic uh so then the next episode that we're going to be getting stuck into will be our athlete um and the athlete that we're going to be talking to is yeah so his name is ben duffus he's a trail and on ultra marathon runner um who you've worked with for a couple of years yeah yeah been lucky enough to work with ben for um yeah for some years now and um yeah uh we were lucky enough to get him to come down to base um, and and do some testing and then we eventually, you know, um, 
worked out that it would be beneficial for us to look at um, some some sweat testing. Mm, yeah. So yeah, this is an interesting one because um, I guess it's not your run of the mill. Your oh, I think I sweat a lot, so I need a sweat test kind mm. of thing. There was a lot more to it than that in mm-hmm. this case. So he mm-hmm. was having a few specific issues, which we'll get into next week on the podcast. Yep. Um, but that sort of culminated in thinking, okay, we need to actually be able to quantify what his sweat sodium losses are. Mm-hmm. So um, when it went ahead and did that uh, at the start of this year. Yeah, um, yes. And so we'll, we'll talk through that process. Um, ben will talk about, you know, why he got that test done, mm-hmm. um, what, what that found yep. um, and how that, that result has been helpful for him specifically. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more practically about, you know, just generally um, putting that into context of why someone might want to get a sweat test and, mm-hmm. and when it's potentially relevant and when it may not be, not be necessarily useful. that that helpful. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Looking forward to that one. Uh, and so if anyone has any questions, um, please feel free to send them to us um, again on social media uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we would love to hear some more more questions and and answer them for you. Uh, and you can listen to us on um, all your popular podcast um, platforms. Yep, absolutely. So Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and Podbean. Mm, yep. Yeah. Awesome. So without um, talking too much further, we look forward to um, seeing you all next week. Yeah, we'll do. We'll see you then. Awesome. See you guys.